Continuing on from last week, we started this new epistle of Jude. Um, We went through the first four verses last week, and this week we're going to pick up where we left off on verse 5, going all the way through verse 16. So if you would turn with me there in your pew Bibles, you can find that on page um, 1027. If you don't have a pew Bible, it's that short epistle just right before, one or two pages before the start of the book of Revelation, Revelation being the last book in our Bibles. Our God and our Father, we do rejoice in all that you have given us in Christ, and we thank you that he is your final word in these last days, your incarnate word. And we pray now, Lord, that you would open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word. We pray pray that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and open our ears, that we would receive your holy gospel, and that you would write on our hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All this we ask, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Starting with verse 5 in the book of Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their, their, their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, did, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme, blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they, destroy, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So is the reading of God's holy word. And what some might call the prequel to The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien starts the Cimmerellian with a fictional account of the creation of Middle-earth. Tolkien goes on to write how the one, Eruluvatar, 
out of his very thoughts created angelic-like beings called the Ainur. Elevator fills the minds of the Ainur with themes of music, casting them to sing. And following these themes given to them by the one, the Einar sing the fictional universe of Adar into existence, filling the once empty void with created things, bringing something out of nothing. However, during the singing of this great song, discord arose, brought forth by a rebellious Einar named Melkor. You see, Melkor had his own ideas about the flow of the music, and he started to weave in his own themes. This created disharmony in the universe. However, during the singing of that great song, however, however, Iluvator, during the singing of that great song, was able to bend Melkor's themes. Bend them much like a swampy Louisiana guitar player is able to bend notes out of tune. All the while using those bends, those out of tune notes, to make the music more sublime, to make it more unique in such a special way, a way that's um, somewhat unexplainable to music theorists. It's as if Iluvatar bends Melkor's themes into his own, ultimately using them to accomplish his own eternal plan. If you've ever been so convinced as I have that at their very best, fictional stories or myths serves to point us to eternal truths that are often veiled in reality, then those of us familiar with the revealed biblical truth might notice that within Tolkien's creation myth, there are echoes that seem to somewhat rhyme with God's truth displayed to us throughout redemptive history. As in Tolkien's mythical world, our real universe was created by the one eternal being. In the book of Genesis, we see the empty void of nothingness being filled with celestial bodies out of the mere words of the one true God. We see harmony brought forth out of chaos. And perhaps the clearest of the parallels, we see that from the very beginning, there are those who seek to defy the one true God, those who tirelessly work to thwart his divine will. Despite the most fevered efforts of his enemies, we see that the will of God cannot be undone. Just as a Tor in Tolkien's universe is able to bend the notes of his enemies to fulfill his great design, so too we see that throughout redemptive history, the Lord Almighty is able to time and again use the evil schemes of his enemies to fulfill his own perfect will. Last week we learned in the opening verses of Jude's letter to the early church that false teachers had weaseled their way in to the congregation and were promoting sexual immorality among the believers. We see that the early church leader Jude reminding believers of who they are in Jesus Christ, reminding them that they can rest knowing that they were called by God, called because they were first beloved by him, and thus they were being kept for Jesus Christ. We see Jude reminding the church that these false teachers would not escape the wrath of God, reminding them that they had long ago been designated for condemnation. And we see Jude go on to admonish believers that amid these attacks, that amid this false teaching, that they are to contend for the one true faith delivered to the saints. Picking up today on verses 5 uh, five through 16, we have here Jude reinforcing the truth that those who rebel against God, those who attempt to thwart the will of God through lies, deceit, and disobedience, those who have doubted God in their unbelief, have throughout redemptive history met with their due punishment. Not only is it Jude's purpose to remind believers of God's persistence in punishing the wicked, but it's also to shock and to frighten believers, at least they fall victim to the trap set by the enemy. And as we look at these examples given by Jude today, I want to focus on four points. 
verses five, in verses 5 through 16, we're going to focus on the fact that there has always been among us those who disbelieve, those who are disobedient, those who deceive, those doomed for destruction. Let's go to our first point, those who disbelieve. Going straight to verse 5, we notice how Jude starts out this section of his, of his epistle, saying, Now I want to remind you, although you fully knew it. You see, Jude understands that as pilgrims on the way, we live, work, and worship in a fading evil age, where everything around us serves to distract the believers, causing us to forget what we've been taught about our Christian faith. Jude knows that we need to be constantly reminded. The enemy works tirelessly to help us forget. We are catechized by this world six days a week. That is why the Lord has set aside this day for us to come together and worship him, to be thought, taught and to reminded the truth and the faith that we confess. And we need to take seriously and we need to be diligent in our attendance to the means of grace that God has set forth for us in his word. We need to be active in holding our elders and our pastors accountable in their duties to assure and to protect the purity of the Lord's divine worship service. Now, what are we to be reminded of? Moreover, how are we to be reminded? Notice here how Jude takes every opportunity to use every verse to emphasize Christian doctrine, the doctrine of the faith. He knew very well that the Jewish audience to which he was writing would have been very familiar with Old Testament history. Look at the end of verse 5. Who was it that saved the people out of Egypt? Well, Jude tells us it was Jesus who brought them out. So to the first century Jew, who would Jesus have had to have been? Jude, Jude here is acknowledging that Jesus was, in fact, God. When someone claims that the New Testament does not teach the Trinity, point him here to Jude, verse 5. It's also important to note that Jude does not shy away from what would have been a controversial claim to the first century Jewish community. He doesn't hold back from proclaiming the divinity of Christ putting Jesus in the place of God and the God of the Old Testament. Back to verse 5, not only do we see Jesus saves his people from bondage in Egypt, but he later destroys those who did not believe. Now, there's a particular episode being referred to in redemptive history. What's being referred to is that episode in Numbers 13 and 14. Remember when the, the, Moses commands, the Lord commands Moses to send spies to the land of Canaan to survey the land that God had promised to give them. Those of us familiar with this story will remember that spies were chosen from each of the 12 tribes and they were sent into the land and they were instructed to report back about the people who dwelt there, whether they were strong or weak, few or many, whether the land was good or bad. And the spies returned from their mission and what do they do? They report that the land was filled with milk and honey and fruit, just as the Lord had promised. However, the people, however, they were afraid because the people who had inhabited the land, they reported, were strong and mighty. They were like giants. They reported that their cities were large and fortified. And in Numbers 14, verses 1 through 5, we learn just how little faith the people of Israel had in God to deliver them into the promised land. Numbers 14, 1 through 5 reads this way. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into a land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones would become prey. 
Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Moving on to verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done amongst them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make for you a nation greater and mightier than they. You see, the Lord was ready to wipe them out all because of their unbelief. What happens? Moses pleads with God on behalf of the people, reminding him of his promise to the people, reminding him of his promise to Abraham. The Lord refrains from destroying them, but he still casts judgment on them because of their unbelief. He proclaims that all those who rose up against him in the wilderness would never enter the promised land. They would wander for 40 years with their dead bodies falling in the wilderness. It was only their children who would be allowed to enter the promised land. When Moses told the people of this punishment, they decided to face the inhabitants of the land without the Lord, without Moses, without the ark. And they were struck down by the Malchalites and the Canaanites, as Jude tells us, destroyed from their unbelief. This is who Jude is referring to in verse 5. And we need to be reminded as the church today that we are also like those Israelites wandering in the wilderness, wandering through this fading evil age, wandering through trials, through sickness, through death, fear, and suffering, wandering all the while noticing that the church is under constant attack, wandering during a time when it seems weak and dwindling. And in those times, we can often behave as if we have forgotten God's promise, forgotten that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been rescued from the bondage of sin and death, given the promise of eternal life in the new heavens and in the earth as children of the one true God. And in times of doubt, we need to remember and to hold fast to that promise, lest we stumble as those who did not believe God in the wilderness. Jude goes on here in verses 6 and 7 to point out that not only do the enemies of God rebel in unbelief, but they rebel by disobeying the commands of God, disobeying his holy and righteous law. And that brings us to our second point, those who are disobedient. Within verses 6 and 7, Jude uses two separate examples to remind believers of the just just punishment that is brought up on on those who do not obey God's law. As the false teachers who had infiltrated the church were participating in encouraging sexual sin, these two examples show us the results of the same kind of perverse rebellion, drawing from the sexual sin of angels as well as humans. Now, in the first example found in in verse 6, Jude refers to what is known as extra-biblical or apocryphal literature. This is the first of three times that he references this type of writing in in his epistle. Here in verse 6, when writing about the disobedient angels, and later in verses 14 and 15, he references an early Hebrew text known as the Book of Enoch. In verses 9, Jude um, refers to an incident involving the archangel Archangel Michael and Satan, and that is found in the apocryphal book known as the Testament of Moses. And while you may be well aware that these apocryphal writings are not included anywhere in the Old or New Testament, and therefore are not deemed authoritative by the Old or New Testament church, although they were likely written at different times in early uh, Jewish history, most of these writings are of unknown authorship and doubtful origin. These writings do not possess the authority of scripture. 
And while it is true that many of the things found in them we now know to be untrue, this is, that does not mean that everything found in them is untrue. It's quite possible, possible when many scholars think quite likely that these in, in, incidents referred to by Jude are in fact historical. But whether they are historical or not, it has no bearing on the authority of this New Testament epistle. What Jude is doing here is he's using material that his Jewish audience would have been familiar with in order to explain and to clarify the meaning of scripture. One writer calls this practice tradition exegesis. Jude uses this method to remind us that the disobedience to the commands of God has lasting consequences, not only for humanity, but for his glorious creatures, the angels. He is making an argument here from the lesser to the greater to cast light on the reality that even those heavenly beings who live in, his very, in the very presence of God will not escape his judgment, making sure that believers were well aware that the heretics among them would not face, would not fare well in their rebellion. Notice verse 6, Jude goes on to write, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. As noted, Jude here is referring to the book of Enoch and to an, an incident where angels had left their proper dwelling place in heaven and were engaging in sexual relationships with human women. This disobedience led to their immediate judgment by the Lord. They were put in change and kept in dark, darkness until the end of time, destined for eternal punishment. We can contrast this against the Lord's elect in verse 1 who were chosen and kept by Jesus Christ, destined for eternal glory. Continuing on, verse 7, Jude goes on to use an Old Testament account in Genesis 19, that account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. What he's doing here is he's perhaps using the most vivid description of God's wrath against those who form a lifestyle out of violating his law. Like the angels in verse 6, and just as the false teachers in the early church were taking part in sexual immoral acts, so too had sexual deviance taken hold of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. We all remember this story, right? Abraham pleads with God not to destroy Sodom if he can just find five righteous men in the city. God sends two angels to the city gates who are met by Abraham's relative, Lot. Lot brings these two angels into his home for food and rest. What happened? The men of the city, both young and old, surround the house and demand that Lot send out his guests so that the crowd can rape them. And we see that Lot has become so shaped and so corrupted by the culture of these cities that he was willing to offer up his own two daughters to appease the crowd. Only after the angels rescue Lot by striking him blind, by, by striking the crowd blind, they tell Lot and his family to flee the city, stating, for we are about to destroy this place. Genesis 19, verses 25 gives that account. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the, of the cities and, all, and what grew on the ground. An image of God's wrath displayed so vividly that the Bible goes on to refer to Sodom and Gomorrah over 20 times after Genesis 19 when, make, when warning mankind about the severity of God's wrath against the wicked. Jude uses it here in verse 6 to press upon the church the consequences of disobeying God's law. Moving on to our third point, verses 8 through, thir eight through 13. Those who deceive. 
Jude continues in his aim to terrify the faithful. At least they should fall into the trap set by those who seek to deceive the people of God. In verse 8, Jude turns his attention back directly to the false teachers corrupting the church. We learn here that they were deceiving God's people by relying on their supposed dreams as authoritative, undermining God's word, a practice that's still very prevalent in the church today, using this deception to falsely justify the defiling of the flesh, rejecting God's authority. At the end of verse 8, we see Jude proclaiming that these false teachers blaspheme, blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, exactly who are these glorious ones that, to which Jude is speaking of here? Well, given the context of verse 9 and verses like it in 2 Peter chapter 2, the most likely answer to this question is that he is referring to angels. And not just any angels in general, but in this case, evil angels. As mentioned earlier, Jude again uses material pulled from apocryphal literature. This time he refers to a first century Jewish work known as the Testament of Moses. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What Jude is doing here is referring to the blasphemous and slanderous attitude these false teachers had towards Satan and his demons. They were deceiving themselves as well as others about the danger of falling under the power of evil forces. The Reformation Study Bible goes on to put it this way. False, these false teachers seem to have slandered the devil and his minions by denying their work, opening themselves up to further deception from the father of lies. If one does not understand Satan's power, one cannot discern it or be on guard against it. You see, what Jude is doing here is contrasting the rash talk of these false teachers with the temperance of the archangel. These heretics and their pride, pride and boastfulness were deceiving themselves, underestimating or even denying the real and present threat of the devil and his forces, which they did not understand. Jude goes on in verse 10 to compare them to unreasoning animals, relying on nothing other than their instincts. That is why it's so important that in all matters of truth, we look to the God's written word. Our dreams and our instincts can often deceive us and lead us astray, causing us to walk in the way of that archetypal sinner's Cain, as we can see in verse 11. Continuing on, Jude goes on to point out these false teachers sought gain for themselves. They were setting out to provide for themselves rather than caring for the purity of the churches that they had entered, committing Balaam's era. We all remember Balaam, right, from Numbers chapter, chapter 22 through 24. As God's people, as the Israelites were wandering through the desert in great numbers, Balak, the king of Moab, sent men to summon Balaam, that he might put a curse on the Israelites so they would be easy, more easily defeated in battle. Balak promises Balaam a significant financial award if he complies. And at first, Balaam demonstrates his commitment to doing only what the Lord commands. After the first request, God comes to Balaam and he tells him to refrain from cursing the Israelites because they were a blessed people, because they were God's people. So Balaam does not go against God, and he refuses to go with Balak's men to curse the Israelites. However, Balaam goes on to entertain the same request from the king of Moab four more times. Each time, going back, asking God a slight, in a slightly different way, under slightly different circumstances, if God will allow him to curse the people of Israel. 
Remember on that, after that second, uh, second request, God even goes so far as to use a, a talking, talking donkey to slow Balaam down from meeting with Balak. It's like he just wouldn't get that hint. He wanted that big reward so badly, he was willing to keep approaching God in different ways, thinking he could get God to change his mind. That was the folly of Balaam. Second so Peter goes on to tell us that Balaam was loved gain from wrongdoing. The book of Revelations chapter 2 tells us that uh, Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Finally, we see in Numbers 31, Balaam is put to the sword by the Israelite army as they fought against Midian. Jude here finishes off the description of these false teachers with a string of adjectives warning just how dangerous and worthless they really are. Hidden reeves. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds slept along, slept along by winds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This brings us to our final point, those doomed for destruction. Jude ends by once again quoting from the apocryphal work of the book of Enoch. He uses from that book a historical Jewish saying that was later recorded in Enoch during the intertestinal period. Starting in verse 14, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This word, these words and imagery here can only cause us to remember John's vision in the book of Revelation of that rider on the white horse in verse 19. He who is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's wise for us here to stop and remember that each and every one of us today falls into one of two camps. There are those of us that are going to rejoice in that great day, that look forward to that great day with hope and anticipation. And there are those of us that ought to shudder and tremble. As Frank pointed out this morning in Sunday school, we, either, we are either those who get mercy or those who get justice. But none of us will get injustice that day. And if this truth causes you to tremble, to fear, to drive you to despair, if you acknowledge that you live a life filled with disobedience, disbelief, and deception, causing you to fear the wrath of God, then I urge you to heed the call of the Holy Spirit today. I urge you to run to Jesus Christ, to put your trust in him, to call him Lord, to rest in that truth given to us in 
John chapter 5, verse 24. Our Lord saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In closing, we can see that in verses 5 through 16, the Lord's servant and the brother of James effectively reminds us that God punishes the wicked. And, that he plainly, as, and as he plainly intended, we should be terrified of falling in, in with those who seek to de- deceive and destroy. And so division within Christ's church. We see in these verses that, there are a lot of, that there's a lot of bad news for these ungodly ones. Those long ago who were designated for condemnation. But for those of us who are called and kept for Jesus Christ, there's good news today. The first thing we should should recognize is that God is in control. The wicked will certainly come to know the wrath of God that awaits them, both men and fallen angels. The unholy ones are able to carry out their wickedness, but they carry it out under the sovereign hand of God. Just as a louvator bends the music of Melchor to enhance his sovereign song, so does the one true God uses the schemes of the unholy ones to accomplish his own divine will. And although the whys of evil are difficult, they're sometimes seemingly impossible for us to understand. We can rest knowing that God ultimately uses the work of those who make a mockery of him and his law to accomplish his own divine will. And his will is good, loved ones. It is holy. It is righteous. It is just because contained in him is the very essence of good, of holiness and righteousness and justice. Secondly, for believers hearing these words of warning from God's servant should be caused to reflect on the abundant mercy that he has shown to each and every one of us. After all, are we any less guilty than those mentioned in these verses? Do we at, to- do we at times live our lives as if we doubt that God will keep the promises, keep his promises, grumbling like the Israelites in the wilderness? Do we find ourselves at times making excuses as to why we don't have to obey what the Lord commands? Do we ever find ourselves watering down or manipulating God's truth in order to make our message more palatable to the sinful world? Are we guilty? Yes. But to those who are called to faith in Christ, that guilty verdict has been overturned. Overturned because 2,000 years ago, God's promised Messiah was born into this world, born of a virgin, living a life of perfect obedience to God's law, succeeding where Adam failed, going blameless to that cross, suffering the wrath that we deserve, given to us the righteousness that he earned, a righteousness that is not our own, freeing us from the power of sin and death, making us his, bestowing upon us eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, he will be our God and we will be his people. And every last teardrop, will be wiped away from our eyes. Amen.